0: Hello from Gilbert and Tobin, I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt
1: Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the world.
0: Today, what does Prof. Fox say? Legendary NYU professor Eleanor Fox joins us to talk about trends in antitrust in the US and worldwide, which is terrific context for us in Australia as we think about some major changes to merger clearance and competition and consumer enforcement.
2: There's this very interesting aspect where, our antitrust enforcers in the U.S. are very much on the same page as of the Vesteyer and the CMA in U.K. and Australia. I think the enforcers are very much of the same point of view of what is an abuse of market power. But the U.S. Our enforcers might say that, but if they go into court, they have to litigate the cases under our law, and our law is not there. But first, Matt, what's been happening around the grounds?
1: Well, the big news for a lot of people is that the strike by the Writers Guild of America has just ended. It lasted for 148 days, which is just five days less than the devastating strike of 1988. And that was blamed for the rise of reality TV, perhaps a little unfairly, and also for the cancellation of moonlighting, which still kind of hurts after all this time.
0: Oh, and were we on strike too, or were we just busy with the World Cup?
1: That was more the World Cup, I think. This negotiation was specifically about screenwriters, and podcasts weren't covered. Oh, I'm not sure this podcast would count as writing anyway, would it? That is probably right. Um, One of the things that I felt most during the strike was that the late night comedy shows like Stephen Colbert and John Oliver all went dark, so the news coming out of America seemed a lot less funny. But then all those late night hosts got together to do their own podcast, with proceeds going to their staff who weren't able to work. So that helped, although it didn't have a lot of news in there, I have to say.
0: Podcasts to the rescue. So were the writers happy with the deal they got?
1: They seem to have got a lot of what they wanted on minimum fees and residuals and the way that writers are involved in the development process. On artificial intelligence, they are allowing studios to use AI to generate material, but that can't affect the way that human writers are paid or credited.
0: So if I tell ChatGPT to write a heartwarming drama about the Matildas winning the World Cup and give that to you to add a few jokes, then I still have to pay the same amount to you and give you the same writing credit as if you'd come up with the whole thing yourself?
1: It would, and that's fair, I think. AI doesn't have to eat or pay the rent. And then on the issue of using human writers' scripts to train generative AI, they've kind of kicked that down the road a bit. So the writers are allowed to say that they reserve their rights in that respect, but
0: it's all really kind of a developing and still disputed area of the copyright law. Well, we look forward to more funny news from the US and all the other projects that had been on pause for the last five months. Well done settling that dispute. Well done. Uh, the screen actors, of course, are still on strike, and they're
1: led by the formidable Fran Drescher from The Nanny, of course. And they have similar concerns about AI being used to alter their performances or even create digital replicas of themselves. And they've all just returned to negotiations, so hopefully those will work out too. Fingers crossed. What else is happening? While still on AI, the European Commission, the European Parliament and the Council of the EU are in what they call trilogue negotiations to finalise the AI Act which is likely to be the first comprehensive regulatory framework for AI from a major jurisdiction. And the European
0: Parliament has prepared a draft, and it's now in talks with the other bodies to finalise it sometime this year.
1: That's right. The Act sets out this process where various AI systems are categorised by the level of risk that they present. AI systems that are considered to present an unacceptable risk are going to be banned, and the Parliament says those should include social scoring, real-time and remote biometric identification, and cognitive behavioural manipulation of people or specific vulnerable groups.
0: And the example they give there is voice-activated toys that encourage dangerous behaviour in children, which seems weirdly specific.
1: It does, but sounds pretty dangerous. Below that level are high-risk AI tools that can affect safety or fundamental rights. Those will need to be assessed before they go on the market, and through their life cycle as well, since they can evolve as they go on. But most of them will be able to be self-assessed by the producers.
0: And those will include systems used in products identified by the EU's product safety laws, like toys that don't tell your children to stab you in your sleep, as well as vehicles, medical devices and lifts, and also general areas like law enforcement, border control and worker management. Some of those things sound pretty Orwellian.
1: Yeah, you'd see why you'd want those to be assessed. And the lift thing really gives me the (laughs) heebie-jeebies. Then there's assistance in legal interpretation and the application of the law.
0: Oh, are those the tools that are going to take our
1: jobs? Well, they might make our jobs easier and maybe so easy they don't need us at all. Oh, what a terrible thought. I'm sure there's a Simpsons reference there. Yep, season four again. Can you imagine
0: a world without lawyers? Oh. More of a visual joke, maybe, but we'll put it in the show notes. Now, generative AI in particular has really exploded in the last year, but the AI Act has been in development since 2021. So how have they kept up with all this stuff that keeps changing?
1: Yeah, well, they've added a new category of foundation models, and that includes generative AI. Those will have extra transparency requirements. They'll need to disclose that content was created by AI. They'll have to prevent illegal content from being generated, and they'll need to
0: summarise the copyrighted data that they've used for training the models. So far, it looks like the use of AI in real-time identification is a real sticking point. For example, to identify bucket man types who are banned from stadiums from getting into games. And a lot of the member countries want to decide for themselves when it's necessary to do that.
1: According to every movie I've ever seen, everyone's been doing that forever. There's also a concern about whether disclosing all the copyrighted
0: material that you might have used to
1: train your AI is really practical at this stage.
0: Well, our unnaturally intelligent Peter Waters has asked whether the risk-based structure of the AI Act is really up to the challenge of generative AI, which by definition can be used for just about anything from the most harmless to the riskiest of applications.
1: Yeah, and you'll remember from our episode before the World Cup that Ed Santo asked whether AI should be addressed with its own legislation at all, or whether laws that already apply to different industries or kinds of conduct can be applied or adapted to AI instead.
0: Well, Peter's also unnaturally prolific, and he's done a lot of updates, which we'll link to in the show notes, including ones on the way AI interacts with unpaid work, with supply chains with market dominance and with journalism.
1: He also has one on the pricing algorithms that businesses can use to maximise their profits by automatically monitoring and responding to the behaviour of customers and competitors. Oh, does that sound like Amazon's Project Nessie? It sounds exactly like Project Nessie, according to people familiar with the matter, who spoke to the Wall Street Journal recently. They said the Nessie algorithm would increase prices on Amazon products and monitor its competitors to see if they raised theirs as well. And if they
0: did, of course, the prices would stay high. Well, Amazon has said that Nessie was meant to stop discounting to unsustainable levels, but it hadn't worked as intended, so they sent it back to the bottom of the lock some years ago.
1: Yeah, I mean, retailers have always had different pricing strategies to maximise their profits, but AI and algorithms can make it that much faster and potentially more effective. And if everyone's using the same kinds of tools, then if that isn't collusion, it's quite hard to tell the difference.
0: And the FTC have actually called upon Amazon to let them remove the redactions and make more of the complaint public, haven't they?
1: They have. FTC Chair Lena Kahn said that secrecy mostly just serves the monopolist, and they'll be pushing to improve public access there. She also said that they think the Amazon case could require significant relief, and the complaint mentioned structural relief, but she hasn't said that that would mean breaking up Amazon necessarily.
0: And Chair Kahn is still doing battle with the Congress, or certain parts
1: of it, isn't she? She is. The Republicans control the House committees now and they do seem to have it in for the chair. This time it's the Energy and Commerce Committee who are threatening to subpoena her because they're not satisfied with her response to their probe into left-wing influence and intimidation of the FTC.
0: And we covered some of the relationships between the regulators, the lawmakers and the courts in our last episode, but Elizabeth Avery also recently spoke to her NYU law professor Eleanor Fox about those issues and many others in this interview with the antitrust legend. Let's take a listen.
3: I'm so thrilled and excited to be interviewing Professor Eleanor Fox today. She was the first female partner at Simpson Thatcher in 1970 with a very successful antitrust practice before moving into academia, and for many years has been the Walter J. Derenberg Professor of Antitrust and Trade Regulation at NYU. Professor Fox continues her work in providing technical expertise for developing countries establishing competition laws and in contributing her vast experience and insights to the currently raging debate on the role of antitrust globally. Her incredible career and service to antitrust is an inspiration to many and to me personally. I was fortunate enough to study under Professor Fox in the late 90s. It was an incredible time. Just starting, Professor Fox, with the evolution of the theory of antitrust enforcement, you've seen a lot over the years, and we've moved from Brandeis to Bork and now to Kahn. Is everything old, just new again?
2: So, first, let me say thank you very much, Elizabeth. And it is a great pleasure to be here with you and to remember the days so long ago when you were my favorite student in class and wonderful to see your career. Is it everything? Old that is new again. I would say no. That there has been an evolution, and the evolution comes from the times of the nineteen sixties and seventies for us, when antitrust was very much about economic democracy, as well as focusing on vibrancy of competition. And then the Reagan administration came along in nineteen eighty eighty one. And the whole paradigm changed to be not only economic, but to have premises built into the economics that was very laissez-faire and very, very friendly with business. And it was time for it to be friendly to business, but might have gone overboard in the other direction. And I think that now, over the last 10 years even, and incorporated in our presidential elections, I think there's time for a change, a kind of movement that interpolates the best of the economics and that comes back to some of the roots of antitrust. But it's not the same as 1960s antitrust, because 1960s antitrust in the U.S. was actually blind to a lot of economics, but it is an updated version.
3: And how, in the updated version, is economics interpreted differently to under Bork or the Chicago School? What is the different role that economics
2: is playing now? I'd first say, as to Bohr, it wasn't just that he wanted economics, but he really did want a laissez faire view of economics. He wanted very, very little intervention in the market. Yes. So, one point today is that the Biden administration is trying to take out what some people call the Chicago school premises that were built into the antitrust law, and which is called sound economics. But they weren't just sound economics. They really were a big sum on the scale for non-intervention. So I think that's the big point, at least one big point. The other relate to what you see the antitrust laws as wanting to preserve. And here, the new administration, it's not too new anymore, but the Biden administration is trying to go back to some legal concept and joining it with economic concept. And that is to look at the competition process, as many countries do, rather than only at trying to predict the outcome of transactions. So trying to predict the outcome of transactions fits into the following paradigm, which we U.S. have been using for 20 years. No intervention unless the plaintiff can prove that the transaction or act will lessen output and raise price and making it hard to prove that because of the presumptions. So one thing that our FTC chair, Lina Khan, has said is we're no longer so focused on the result. We're focused on the process. We want to preserve the competition. And indeed, our law, certainly our merger law, talks about lessening competition. So according to her, we should be looking at competition and the competition process. And we should be looking at when a merger, for example, is weakening the forces of competition, and thereby making or probably going to make the firms less responsive to the stakeholders.
3: Recently, there are new draft merger guidelines that have been released by the agencies. Do they reflect that new thinking?
2: Yes, they absolutely do. In fact, that's the big way that they reflect thinking, that according to them, but they have to go into court to win their cases. So so that's why I'm saying, according to them. Yes. According to them, we should no longer be saying no enforcement unless it lessens output. We should be looking at the weakening of the forces of competition, whether a merger takes off the market by competition between two leading firms in a market, for example. That's what the guidelines focus on.
3: And as you say, um, Eleanor, they do have to go into court to prove their case. How Consistent
2: with the case law, do you think these guidelines are? The guidelines, to some extent, they're ambiguous enough so that you could do one reading and say fairly consistent, then you could do a different reading and say, no, it's just new. It's a new way of thinking about analyzing mergers. There's virtually no Supreme Court merger law coming out of our Supreme Court for decades because the cases don't go that far. But there is law of a lot of circuit courts, and that's exactly where the agencies are going to have to make their case, and they're going to have to make a case that is consistent with the existing law. And they're trying. I mean, at least whenever they go into court and you look at the complaint, you can read the complaint and see they're trying to push the envelope, but they're also grabbing a hold of doctrines that have been applied by the courts recently. When I
3: look at the cases in the courts recently, they've not been winning a lot. Is that
2: going to change? There aren't that many cases that have been adjudicated in court and there are a lot in the pipeline and there's a difference too between the merger cases and the monopoly and agreement cases. For the merger cases, the Justice Department did win its case against Penguin, Simon & Schuster on an issue that is a relatively new issue. It's a buyer power issue. So that was very interesting and helpful to the authorities. On the merger front, other cases have not been so successful. There haven't been that many. And you can say there's so few that it's too early to tell. But when they go into court, they really do have to toe the line of the law as it is rather than the changes they would like to make.
3: And of course, I suppose you're then confined by evidence rules and court processes, which do add complexity.
2: The agencies, and especially Jonathan Cander at the Justice Department, is always saying, I'm going to get good facts and bring good cases. And when I argue on the basis of good facts, I'm going to win. And that is actually, it's a pretty good strategy. I would say, unfortunately, for some of the cases that have been in the courts lately, the agencies take what's on their plate. I mean, they can't go out and find a better merger to sue. And the facts seem like they haven't been for them. They have lost on the facts. They've lost more on the facts than they have lost on the law.
3: And so the recent Microsoft Activision Blizzard case, I think, is an interesting example there.
2: Yeah. This is a very interesting example, and in a way, the stage was not set well for the Federal Trade Commission, and that's because the UK and the EU found that merger anti-competitive. And of course, the EU got a number of concessions from Microsoft so that Microsoft will make this library of games available to its competitors. And when the FTC went into court, the judge said, well, look at all these promises that Microsoft has made. It's not going to degrade the quality of what it's doing to competitors. It's promised the EU that it's not going to do that. And this made it much harder for the FTC because the judge put the burden on the FTC to prove that given all of the agreements and promises that Microsoft made to settle with the EU, the merger was still anti-competitive.
3: I was interested to read recently Jonathan Counters, the Assistant Attorney General in the Antitrust Division, uh, his remarks in relation to the Philadelphia National Bank case. When I studied antitrust and then when I practiced in the US, we largely disregarded that as old law and no longer relevant, yet I see this revival harking back to those old cases. Is that how the agencies are seeking to bridge, I guess, the difference in years? and the the difference between perhaps current case law and the guidelines?
2: Yes, and I'm glad you mentioned that case because, of course, this is the case in which a leading bank was acquiring a leading competitor, increasing concentration significantly, and the Supreme Court then said, when you have such a merger, there's a presumption that the merger is anti-competitive and the defendant has to come forward and show that the merger is not anti-competitive. So it's interesting. There was a period of time when you were in New York that people were questioning whether that would be applied because the structural presumption, many economists would say, was not supported by the facts. And if you're going to make an economic imprint, there weren't enough facts to make a presumption that the merger was anti-competitive. Interestingly, though, that case has actually survived. It's used by most courts today to say when there are leading competitors merging, important increase in concentration, the burden shifts. And today, for those who are the experts, they know it's not necessarily that there's always a logical inference, but it's some combination of likely enough to be harming competition. Defendant has all the facts. And as a matter of convenience and litigation efficiency, they shift the burden. So it's not questioned in the courts today. The courts will usually shift the burden in Philadelphia National Bank. That is probably the only situation that's horizontal where there is a legal presumption in our case law that is currently used. So under the new draft merger guidelines, the agencies would like a lot more presumptions, but they're not in the law. The AGC is currently looking at
3: merger reforms in Australia that would shift the presumption. I think what we're grappling with here in Australia is the difficulty of then proving a negative. You have to prove that your merger would not substantially lessen competition, which can be very challenging. How have practitioners and how have the courts dealt with overcoming that presumption in the US?
2: Actually, it can do pretty well in the United States. There are cases in which the presumption is overcome. One important case is Baker Hughes, all of the things you would normally put in the case that actually the competition is very vibrant, that if the merging parties are trying to exploit it all, the competition is going to zoom in and pressure them to not exploit. In Baker's shoes, it was the question of foreign competition that would come in immediately if the firms would exploit. So whatever your case is, whatever the universe of facts is, the emerging parties do have a significant chance if the market is really competitive, despite the high concentration and high increase, you will find the facts and the good experts that
3: will testify. That's an important point. It's the the judicial process allows those facts to be flushed out properly through the experts, through the cross-examination and documents. That's all part of the process. Professor Fox, the other aspect I wanted to touch on was the Chevron doctrine that has existed for many years with a presumption of deference to the agencies. What's the current state of the law there and how do you see that developing?
2: Our Supreme Court has just overruled the Chevron doctrine. It has said in the last year, it's no longer the case that we're going to give deference to the agencies. Our Supreme Court is on a track of, it looks like, sort of trying to gut agencies, calling that deep state and not wanting the agencies to have too much power, too much sway, and not wanting the agencies to have leeway to make policy that's right in the area of their expertise. So between the reversal of Chevron and another case, which is about the agencies taking moves that make policy where Congress has not very explicitly given them the power and told them to make the policy, Supreme Court has cut back power of agencies. This is not very good news for the Federal Trade Commission. And it is not very good news, especially on Federal Trade Commission rulemaking. So Federal Trade Commission does have power to do rulemaking in consumer protection. There is a question of law, whether it has power to make rules in competition law. And the doctrines are challenging the FTC, both where it already has power, but there might be a new issue of major importance that the Supreme Court is saying, if you have new issues of major importance, unless Congress has very specifically given you that power, you don't have the power. So this is very challenging for the Federal Trade Commission.
3: It does really sound like battle lines are being drawn between the courts and the agencies at the moment. That is right, yes. Just moving to unfair competition prohibition in Section 5, I've seen Chair Khan's recent statements around the revival of Section 5. It's a really interesting provision that for many years has been somewhat dormant. How do you see that playing out now in in the way the, the FTC is prosecuting cases? Is it leading to uncertainty as to whether parties can rely on what the law under Section 1 or Section 2 of the Sherman Act is, or also have to worry about whether there's some broader scope that they don't really understand where the limits are under Section 5? How do you see that playing out?
2: So, Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act says there shall be no unfair methods of competition. And over the years... The Federal Trade Commission itself has kind of tied its hands behind its back and said, we don't want the law to be too broad or too unclear. And we're basically going to follow the contours of the Sherman Act. And sometimes the commissioners have said, and no more. But almost everybody, not everybody, almost everybody realizes the Federal Trade Commission Act is broader than the Sherman Act. And so there's some room for going beyond the contours of the Sherman Act. And especially in the last 20 years, when our Supreme Court has cut back the Sherman Act, it has explicitly said it doesn't even cover all acts that are anti-competitive. So that's an area where very many people will say it's fair game for the FTC to come in. Private parties cannot use an order from the Federal Trade Commission and rely on it and say, oh, you found this illegal. I want my damages. So there is some good reason to say that we don't have to worry as much if the Federal Trade Commission Act is a little broader than the Sherman Act. Private parties cannot rely on it. They don't have a cause of action under the Federal Trade Commission Act. So there is some good reason for that additional flexibility and reason not to worry too much about the dangers, especially since the Supreme Court has recently said that the FTC does not have the power of penalty in most cases for a Federal Trade Commission violation. So it's really looking at an injunction. That's an important point. This FTC Act is one of the cases in which I think Chair Kahn is exactly right. The statute has been there for so many years and it's been actually cut back notionally by the Federal Trade Commission itself. And she says, we want to use it. We want to use the whole thing and not cutting it back so that it meets the test of the Sherman Act, especially when the Sherman Act is being cut back. So, as you just alluded to, uh, the Federal Trade Commission came out with a statement of policy on the scope of Section 5. The statement of policy is somewhat ambiguous, but it also has some pretty clear guideposts to be a violation of the Federal Trade Commission Act, the act must be unfair as a concept hinged to competition, and it must be conduct that undermines competition. So unfairness could be exploitation, coercion, a whole bunch of other things, but it must be linked up to the competition process, not just this is unfair to this one individual. So unconscionability vis-a-vis an individual. That's right. So unconscionability would come in there. Our Sherman Act does not prohibit exploitation. So it does not prohibit really unconscionable overcharges. Most jurisdictions have an excessive pricing law, but U.S. does not. And the FTC could take up that slack that the exploitation offense, not an offense under the Sherman Act, could properly be an offense under the Federal Trade Commission Act. There are problems because one doesn't want to be closely looking down the back of companies that are fixing price sort of just a little too high. One would want to be real clear exploitation, coercion, whatever. But other countries do this and the Federal Trade Commission Act could. Since its promulgated statement, I do not think that it has brought many cases that are on the competition side. So I don't think that the statement of a broader canvas, I don't think that has come to haunt business. I do want to add, I think we might talk a little bit about big tech, but I want to add there are a lot of conduct of big tech firms that fall short of our Sherman Act, but could be taken up by the Federal Trade Commissioner.
3: It seems like a natural segue into that topic, which is such an important topic for the evolution of antitrust. Really interested to hear your views on what the current debate is and whether we can just use the antitrust laws to enforce perceived harms or whether there's a need for more specific enforcement.
2: So uh, this is a really interesting subject and in a way it's a kind of overall subject. When the US began to have a popular rhetoric, where is antitrust? Why isn't it being applied to help us, the people? It came up in the context of big tech. And uh, long ago, six, eight years ago, when many people and mostly not lawyers and not antitrust lawyers were worried, here are huge giants in an area, big tech, Big data hadn't been seen before, and many people were concerned that the handful of the biggest of the big tech companies were using their data, maybe stealing their data, appropriating their data, exploiting the people, and a lot of subjects that are not antitrust related, and spreading disinformation, for example, and many social values impaired. People were concerned about the big tech firms. This became a movement, and it rose bigger than antitrust. And it was certainly in our U.S. 2020 election when Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders were wanting very much to get at or break up big tech. And Congress had hearings on the big tech firms, about the big tech firms, including listening to the testimony of the leaders of the big tech firms, and pinpointing what became called many abuses of the big tech terms, This corresponded with what other countries were doing. We had a report in the United States which corresponded with reports that were written for Germany and the UK and the EU. And Australia took a big position in parts of the big tech concerns, especially in media. So when the big Tech concerns arose. Our Congress introduced legislation to tame the tech, none of which seems to have had enough traction to pass. Amy Klobuchar was very much in the forefront of the big tech bills and has introduced them again. But it's even harder this session of our Congress than the last session of our Congress to get the big tech bill passed. But this is what I want to say in answer to your question about. Why isn't antitrust law itself just fine? Why do we need to go in new directions? Because countries are going in new directions and jurisdictions are going in new directions, including your legislation on media, that's Australia proposed guidelines and EU about to implement its Digital Markets Act, which is regulation that's akin to, but different from antitrust and UK doing something pretty similar. So these are the problems from the U.S. point of view, which are greater even than most of the rest of the world. A lot of the conduct that has been highlighted is unilateral conduct, so it would fall under our unilateral conduct provision, which is Section 2 of the Sherman Act. Section 2 of the Sherman Act requires first that a company be a monopoly, not just have market power. And second, that it do anti-competitive act that given our Supreme Court jurisprudence are fair to attack under the antitrust law. And both of those aspects turn out to be really important barriers that have to be gotten over when a case is brought under section two of the Sherman Act. And so we, in the United States, we're about to have a trial against Google. Some of these issues are going to be coming up. Is Google a monopoly? Google says the competition is a click away. That is a, in a way, fair argument in the United States. Google will try to prove that it does not have monopoly power. I shouldn't put it that way. The government has to prove that it does. And Google is probably the one of the big tech firms that's most likely to be found to have monopoly power. If you get down to Amazon, which also there are various practices that have been documented that many people think are abuses, but is Amazon a monopoly? I think this is a difficult question. Amazon might, if you're pushing it, have almost 50% of certain retail digital markets, and it might be less, and it faces a lot of retail competition and digital retail competition. So that first box has to be kicked and proved. And many jurisdictions, like this is the whole reason for the Digital Markets Act, not the whole, has the reason that you shouldn't have to prove it each time that here are huge gatekeepers. They do have a lot of power if they are found to come within the confines of what the covered platforms are. The EU does not have to prove it every time that these firms have even dominant power. Uh, So for U.S., we have to prove it every time and we have to prove monopoly power.
3: Yeah, in Australia, it's also slightly less. You just have to prove substantial market power and more than one
2: firm can have substantial market power. I think Australia, because of that, is very modern and doesn't face these big problems about a huge high bar for sufficient power. And then the question, the conduct. The U.S. antitrust cases have made it very hard for plaintiffs to prove that unilateral conduct is anti-competitive. We have a very, very strong rule coming out of our Trinko case, which says that firms have a right to refuse to deal. And many exclusionary practices are put into that category. Oh, it was just a question of the defendant did not deal on the terms that the plaintiff wanted, and that's shielded from antitrust law. Can't be a violation. And that protects a huge amount of conduct, and it might protect all the self-preferencing conduct that's going to be litigated, but it might be that U.S. does not have a law against self-preferencing. Meaning that if you have a platform, you make the platform, you can do what you want on the platform. It's like intra-brand competition rather than inter-brand cross-platform.
3: I suppose if you look back to some of the early antitrust cases on the flip side, people might argue that that is the fruits of your labor. You've
2: built that position and in self-preferencing, that's your right to do that. That's right. I mean, this is an argument that is a better argument in US courts than anywhere else in the world. You built it, you can do what you want with it.
3: I guess it also brings in the issue of convergence, which I know is an issue you've been following for many years, convergence and divergence. Back when I started out antitrust practice in the US, one of the first cases that I got involved in was the G. Honeywell case, which of course reached dramatically different results in the US compared with Europe. I'd be interested in your views as to why that happened and whether you still think that would
2: happen today. That's very interesting and does lead into a very interesting conversation about convergence. Are we more converged today or not? So G.E. Honeywell, at least the decision of the European Commission was very much at odds with the US.' decision to let that merger go through. And of course, that was appeal to the Court of First Instance, as it then was called in the EU. And the Court of First Instance actually disagreed with the analysis of the European Commission and prohibited the merger on horizontal grounds, not conglomerate grounds. So at the end of the day, the divergence from G.E. Honeywell was not as great as it would have been if the conglomerate aspects had not been relitigated. But what does that do for today? This is my view. I mean, the it's really interesting that the nations of the world seem to be on the same page on certain issues and then they're not on other issues. Take a look or think of the tech today. There's this very interesting aspect where our antitrust enforcers in the US are very much on the same page as Margaret of and the CMA in UK and Australia. I think the enforcers are very much of the same point of view of what is an abuse of market power. But the U.S., our enforcers might say that, but if they go into court, they have to litigate the cases under our law, and our law is not there. So we have a divergence. We have a divergence probably on self-preferencing. We have a divergence on standards for sufficient market power to capture unilateral acts. And those are pretty big divergences. On mergers, I find fascinating now, the merger that you brought up before on Microsoft Activision with the situation between the UK and the EU is so interesting because they both found that the merger was anti-competitive. But as we said before, the EU accepted Microsoft's commitments and the CMA did not. And at first, it looked like they were going to bargain it out, and they just decided that they are not accepting the commitments. They're going forward with the injunction. And then Microsoft comes forward and says, okay, so I am going to keep my commitments to the EU within the European Economic Area. But will outside of the European economic area, there might be a different way of doing business in order to comply with the UK. A different remedy. Yeah. And then as I mentioned in the US, the remedies of the EU have become very important as background for trying the case. So you had all three enforcers making a judgment in the first instance. This merger is anti-competitive and you have three different results. It's really interesting. And I wonder, part of it is they all have quite different processes. Right. They have
3: very different processes. It's interesting how much that process then plays into the substantive results. Where do you think antitrust is heading to in the next five years? I know that's a long time in the world of antitrust with potential changes of administration, or at least facing election, whether or not there's a change.
2: I am optimistic that the conversation has changed in the United States to be much more aware of market power and its abuse, even if it doesn't go all the way to adopt new principles that our current enforcers would like us to adopt. I think there has been a movement for the good in recognizing forms of power that most of the rest of the world recognize. And I think that Through this period of time where, as I mentioned, there's been a new conversation in the United States, and I think there's been a kind of convergence around that. Loose, very loose, there's not going to be one law, but I think that there is a kind of recognition that there can be new forms of power, the big tech, big network effects, big data effects being very much related to the new forms of power and a need to respect the power and try to contain the power, even Mm -hmm. though it's sometimes, or especially because it's sometimes exercised by firms that are global firms. So I think antitrust has taken on a new life. Certainly it has in the United States, but I think it has taken on a new life and with good conversation that both respects the economics as well as the business aspects of what's necessary to do good business and to serve people and what isn't necessary to do good business and is only to exploit. I think that the world is in a somewhat better place on antitrust, but not much else, unfortunately. And that the antitrust community has always been cosmopolitan in the sense of regarding effects across the world. And that also might distinguish antitrust from most other aspects of economic, political life in the world today.
3: Thank you very, very much for your time and your insights. I'm very grateful to have benefited from those insights over many years. If you were giving advice to a young antitrust lawyer starting out today, Eleanor, what would be your key point of advice to being a good antitrust lawyer?
2: I have dual advice. I mean, one is a good antitrust lawyer has to be a good technician. A good antitrust lawyer has to listen really carefully to the fact and to love the fact and to understand how to analyze the fact. So the first is let yourself get Train into the technicalities of the law so that you really understand it. And the second is don't be shy about making your own judgments and thinking about what you think is really happening in the market, in the world. Develop thoughts of your own so that you do not become a technical clog, technician clog, because antitrust is full of policy. It's full of really interesting, wonderful policy. So let yourself develop as a policy person as well as a technician. I think that's really great advice. Thank you. And obviously makes the
3: practice of antitrust law so exciting for us that we get to not only analyze facts and get to understand industries so closely, but also think more broadly about how the case or how an agency might perceive a case fits into the world and adapt our strategies accordingly. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. I really appreciate your time. Thank
2: you, Elizabeth. This has been fun and interesting and I appreciate it.
1: What a great interview. It's amazing to hear about the shift in antitrust and the rise and fall of the different schools from someone who was actively part of a lot of it.
0: And interesting to hear what she said about Amazon on whether it's a monopoly or not.
1: Yeah, it'll be fascinating to see how those FTC cases unfold and what happens in the next US elections, which are just over a year off now.
0: I mean, there's a lot more at stake in those elections than antitrust, but I guess there are other podcasts to deal with those more existential threats. Yeah, and now the late night shows again as well. (laughs) Indeed. Well, in the meantime, Matt, what can you see in your crystal ball? Well, I can see that the Attorney
1: General is holding up the substitution board with some changes to the High Court team. Chief Justice Susan Kiefel is retiring and Justice Stephen Gagler is being promoted to captain, while Justice Robert
0: Beach-Jones is coming off the bench, in this case the New South Wales Supreme Court bench. Well, I know we used to brief senior counsel Stephen Gagler on Trade Practices Act matters back in the day, but Justice Gagler has been on the High Court since 2012. And he's also heard some pretty important competition and consumer cases in that time, hasn't he? He has. He was part of the majority in the Flight Centre
1: case, and that's the one that confirmed that an agent can be in competition with their principal for the purposes of the competition law. And that's had a big impact on the way we look at businesses that supply goods or services direct
0: to the public, as well as through various intermediaries. Which is a lot of businesses these days. His honour was also in the narrow majority in the Cobalt case, which held that the informal credit scheme that Mr Cobalt offered to disadvantaged customers wasn't unconscionable.
1: Yeah, and in that case, Justice Gagler said he'd been reluctant to grant special leave to appeal to the High Court because it was such a hard case and might not provide the kind of clarity or certainty that you'd want from an appeal to the highest court in the land. And he was right about that. The decision was very controversial. And it's one of the main reasons we're looking at a prohibition on unfair trading practices, which Treasury, of course, is consulting on right now.
0: They say that hard cases make bad law. Is that going to happen here?
1: We'll see. They also say that bad laws make hard cases.
0: And what do we know about the newest
1: Justice Beach Jones? Well, since he's coming from a state court, he hasn't had as much involvement in the Commonwealth legislation as a judge. He brings a lot of expertise in criminal law, which might help as criminal cartel cases come to the high court and also with the ongoing discussions about penalties and civil cases.
0: And he's married to quite a famous playwright, isn't he? He
1: is. Uh, Susie Miller started out as a lawyer, but decided quite sensibly that writing about lawyers, among other things, is better than being one. Her most recent play is a one-woman show about the life of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the notorious RBG.
0: Well, maybe we'll see a bit of that dramatic flair in the judgments of Justice Robert Beach Jones, RBJ.
1: Let's hope. Those appointments will take effect from the 6th of November, so we'll look forward to seeing how the new court deals with competition and regulation issues, and all the other important questions, of course.
0: And remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes and email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au.
1: And we've got some great guests still to come, including Special Counsel Richard Lestrange on Undertakings. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. Till
0: next time, this was The Competitive Edge
1: with Gilbert and Tobin.